For the most part of the year, we have been studying the whole matter of biblical forgiveness. We began with what we call the essence of forgiveness, that is laying out the fact that we are all sinners and thus all in need of the forgiveness of God. None of us escapes the fact that we sin and that we continually sin and we need the forgiveness of God. We live in a generation when the wickedness of man is increasing and abounding and more and more people can see the sinfulness. But it's true of all men. We are sinners in need of the forgiveness of Jesus. It is what he said when he taught and what he ministered, that your sins are forgiven. We from there went to see from the scriptures the existence of forgiveness. That is that God is a loving and a forgiving God. Not as he is portrayed in the media or in science as a mean, harsh God who's responsible for most of the deaths in the world today. God is a loving and a forgiving God. He offers forgiveness to all men and calls on them to repent and believe. And we saw that the pinnacle of the forgiveness of God is seen in the sacrificial death of His Son, Jesus Christ. That He gave His life a ransom for many to save men from their sins. That they would be set free and forgiven. He gave His life that you and I could today be forgiven. So the whole study has been centered around your and my being forgiven. But what about you forgiving others? Are you able to forgive? I hope you are. Because Jesus has some pretty stern words for people who are unable to forgive. And that only those who are able to forgive are genuinely His people. It is the next evidence of your forgiveness. We have so far under this final heading in our study, the evidence of forgiveness, touched on three areas. The one who is forgiven by God will love Him. We'll love Jesus. How could you not love God for sending His Son to die for your sins? That you would be forgiven. You must love Him. And if you do not, it is evidence that you are not forgiven. The second one we saw is that you would have thanks to God. Genuine, heartfelt appreciation for God and for Jesus, for what He has done for you to save you from your sins. Last week we finished up with our third area, that those who have truly been forgiven will be those who truly worship, who love to worship, who want to worship. We saw in the Old and the New Testament that lovers of God, those who have been saved, will have a heart to worship God. 
And dare I say that today, genuine Christians will not look for excuses to stay home, will not look for excuses to not go to church, but they will want to go to church. It will be the highlight of their week to meet with the people of God and worship Him. To worship Him in fear and in awe and in joy. But to worship the God of the Bible. That's the heart of one who has been forgiven. Today, we'll turn from those areas to our fourth area, as we will see that those who are forgiven will be forgiving. Those who have been forgiven will be forgiving. Turn with me again, please, in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 6. It is so, such a common text that most people have it memorized. If you were to say to somebody, recite the Lord's Prayer, most people, well, maybe I'm going back a few years, most people used to be able to do it. In fact, we used to actually say this in school, in a public school, before every assembly, they would recite the Lord's Prayer. I even remember when I was in sixth grade, the principal of the school, agitated and upset as he came before the school in an assembly and angrily told the school that we are no longer allowed to recite the Lord's Prayer. I remember that. It was before I was saved, but I remember the day. And I remember the man's name, Mr. Miles. He was mad about the government's decree that you can't say prayers in school anymore. But you used to, and so sometimes people will still even know the Lord's Prayer. And I want to focus not only on the Lord's Prayer, but what Jesus kind of says afterwards, as we see from the Scriptures here, that your forgiveness hinges on your forgiving. This is a key text. Look again at verse 9. Pray then this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's right there in the prayer. And I remind you of what he said in verse 8. Don't be like them. That is, don't be like the rest of the world. You are ones who will be characterized by your forgiving nature, your willingness and your ability to forgive your debtors as God has forgiven you. In fact, let's focus now on verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This is quite blatant, quite blunt, quite clear. If you are unwilling to forgive others, it is an indication that you have not 
been forgiven by God. Now, I want to make sure that we see here, as we have seen in several other areas, that Jesus is not saying that you earn forgiveness by forgiving others. Because some would look at this and see in verse 14, if you forgive others, then your Father will forgive you. It's not like you are earning your forgiveness by going around forgiving others. That's not what he's saying. Rather, as other areas we have seen, it is indicative that you have been forgiven when you are one who is willing and able to forgive others. If you forgive others of their transgressions, it shows that your Father has forgiven you. But if you do not forgive them, it shows that your heart is not right with God and you are not one whose sins have been forgiven. It's pretty serious. A simple thing like forgiving others. So I ask you, how are you doing with that? This is really big right now this time of the year. Families get together. It happens with young kids and it happens with older ones as well. And it's, it's not always easy to turn the other cheek, to forgive, to overlook the sin and the uh, fact that they're unsaved. But sometimes you kids know about this. You get in squabbles and you get in arguments. She did this to me. She's the one who did it. It's all her fault. There has to be a forgiving nature. And sometimes it happens in churches. Grown-ups get a bug or a bee or that just keeps irritating you and bugging you. And I see churches squabble and fight and disagree because there is a not an attitude of forgiveness, of compassion and forgiveness among the people, which is indicative that they're lost. And we have churches that are filled with people that are unwilling to forgive because they are lost. They are themselves unforgiven. And so this is a serious thing that Jesus points to in this text. Are you willing to forgive others? It shows your heart if you are forgiven or not. Now, I can't tell you how this really comes up often in the Scriptures. Our Lord teaches it sometimes like in passing. He just says it. For instance, in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 11, Jesus calls on His followers to forgive others in their prayers. But I'm going to ask you to turn to another passage in this regard, a lot clearer and pointed. It's this same gospel, chapter 18. So Matthew chapter 18. This is a great text, a very interesting text. And Jesus shows here the downright wickedness that can arise in some seen in their unwillingness to forgive. We can call this as... The commentators do the parable of the unmerciful servant. And I ask you to turn and look at verse 23, Matthew 18, verse 23. 
Let's begin by reading there. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, before we go any further, who is he talking about? What is he saying when he says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king? He is uh, comparing what he's about to say to the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? What is he speaking of? What is he comparing this to? People, it is the church. That's what he's talking about. And that will become evident even as he goes further. But he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, which is his people. And he is the king. But he tells this parable. He goes on and he says, even as he did in the Lord's Prayer, that there will be a contrast between Christians and non-Christians that will become evident to the entire congregation, to the people, and even as we see our Christian life today as it is affected by the rest of the world and how we deal with them. And this is what he now says, beginning in verse 24. So the king's going to settle accounts. And when he began to settle his accounts, there was one who owed him 10,000 talents. And he was brought to the king. He owed the king 10,000 talents. Does anybody know what a talent is? I'm sure some of you do. If you look in your Bibles, some of your marginal readings suggest that a talent was worth more than 15 years wages. I'm going to give you a different formula. Turn the page to chapter 20. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. And here Jesus is comparing the kingdom to a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. Verse 2. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for a day, he sent them out into the vineyard. Now, a denarius, you can go back to 18 now. A denarius or a denarii was a common payment for a day's labor. It was the common wages for a day's work. A denarius or a denarii. But basically it's the same thing and it's a day's wages. So consider with me then, a person who works one day gets one denarius. Now a talent was the equivalent to 6,000 denarii. One talent is 6,000 denarii. So, you work six days a week. How many days work does it take to make one denarii? Somewhere in the neighborhood of ten years. Ten years laboring to make one talent. I said denarii. One talent. So it takes ten years to earn one talent, approximately. And that doesn't even include your expenses. 
Because you have to pay rent, and you have to buy food, and you have to buy clothing. That's why the marginal reading says maybe 15 years to make one talent. And so the average worker in his lifetime isn't even able to make 10 talents, let alone what Jesus says, 10,000. This guy owed 10,000 talents. How could he pay that back? He couldn't pay it back. You couldn't pay it back in 20 lifetimes. It's impossible. It would be like me asking Matt to pay back our national debt. It's impossible for him to have paid back all of this money. It was indeed an insurmountable debt, an unpayable debt. It was impossible. Now, before we move on, I want you to understand that this really is a picture of whether or not a person is saved. And I know that most of you realize that you had a debt just like this. Not for shekels or denarii, not for dollars or $100 bills, but you had an unpayable sin debt that you could in no way pay back through your good deeds, your good works, or anything else. It was an insurmountable, unpayable sin debt that each of us is born with. And Jesus gave his life to pay that debt. Isn't that wonderful? This is the picture. This guy could no way pay back this debt. Now look at verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Now how could he repay it in jail? He couldn't. You got a little bit in jail, even then. That's my understanding. But to come up with 10,000 talents worth in jail, it's impossible. And he might have a beautiful wife, but I doubt she's going to bring 10,000 talents worth on the market. Or his kids. It is impossible for him to have paid this back. And so this was a death sentence. He was sent to prison for eternity because it would have been impossible for him to have paid back the debt. But the king said, send him to prison. That is what we could call the insurmountable debt of the servant. But now look at the immeasurable Mercy of the king. Verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay his Lord, he commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. 
So the slave fell on the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. How? He couldn't. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him his debt. Now this slave, verse 26, if you look there, he fell to the ground and he begged for mercy. He begged for mercy. He begged for mercy because he knew he was wrong. He knew he owed the debt. He, the only thing that could save him or help him from that was mercy. And so he asked the king for mercy. How did this slave get to this place? How did this servant get to the place where he owed 10,000 talents? You couldn't make that much in 10 lifetimes. How could he do it? Where did it come from? He stole it from the king. That's the logical implication. He was a servant of the king, probably kept the books, and kept the money that was supposed to go to the king's coffers. He was a thief. So he deserved to be sold and sold into bondage. He deserved it. But he falls down on his face and he pleaded for his life. Now there was no way he could pay it back, but he said he would. So not only was a thief, he was a liar. And the king took pity on him and amazingly forgave his debt. Can you imagine that? Here's a guy that owes the king 10,000 talents. Far more than most people would ever have made in their entire lifetime. Ten lifetimes. And the king had mercy on him and forgave him. I tell you the truth, that this is the same mercy that King Jesus has had on every single one of you who has been saved. You have an unpayable debt, immeasurable, like the national debt today. The clock keeps ticking, and it keeps getting worse. But God, in His mercy, forgives sin, forgives debt, and that is what He did. Now, verse 28. The tables get turned. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Remember what a hundred denarii is? About a hundred days. This guy owes a hundred lifetimes and the king forgives him. And he finds a slave who owns him a hundred days. And what does he do? seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Same thing the slave said to the king. Have mercy on me, I'll pay it back. He had no chance of paying it back. This guy actually might have had a chance to pay it back. But what did the slave do? He was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what he owed. 
He had no mercy. He was unwilling to forgive. The king was willing to forgive him all, but he was unwilling to forgive even this little bit. Now you look over to verse 31. So his fellow slaves saw what had happened, and they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Telling the Lord, telling the king, that the slave that he had forgiven 10,000 talents went and choked this guy and threw him into prison for a hundred denarii. And so what does the king do? Well, the king says, now, verse 32, summoning him, the Lord said, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. That is the death sentence. That's cast into hell. That's a picture of hell where men will be tortured for all eternity because their debt will never be paid back. It is impossible for that debt to be paid back. And so the king handed the slave over to the torturers to be tortured. And now look what Jesus says in verse 35. My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You see, it's for you. It's for me. Some say it's just a parable. It may be a parable, but that does not take away one ounce of the truth in this text. That if you are unwilling to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. I remind you again of that passage we looked at at Luke, in Luke's Gospel, where the rich man and Lazarus both died. The rich man goes to Hades. And the rich man does what? He cries out to Abraham, Have mercy! What's the response? Too late! There is no mercy for you anymore. This shows the severity of judgment upon men who are unwilling to forgive. And it shows the heart of someone so cold and so callous who is unwilling to forgive. So much so that Jesus speaks of them being sent not just to prison, but to the torturer until it's all paid and it can never be paid. There is no escape and there is no mercy. How are you at forgiving? Now, I purposely skipped over two verses here in this passage, but I want you to look back up to what we find happening in verse 21. Because this is the context of Jesus' response 
This is why Jesus gave this parable. It's one of those really heartwarming Jesus and Peter accounts. When Jesus and Peter talk about things together. And there are several of these in the Gospels. But here's this account with Jesus speaking to Peter. And Peter asks him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How many times should you forgive? And Peter goes, well, you know, here's a big number. Jesus will be impressed by this. Seven times? Should I forgive him way, way up to like seven times? And it's not seven times a day. It's like seven times, period. So Peter thinks, wow, here, I'll throw out a big number. Seven times. Should I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 70 times seven. That's amazing. Now, I want you to understand something from this text, and it's a great text to see this. Do you think Jesus is saying that when you get to 490, which is 70 times 7, then you can stop forgiving people? My brother comes to me, and that's 490, 478, 480, 485, 86, 89, 490! I don't have to forgive him anymore! You think that's what Jesus is saying? This is one of those texts that we find in the scripture where numbers are used to show perfection or completion. And so Jesus is not saying at 491, you can stop forgiving. What Jesus is saying is that you will constantly, always being one who forgives. If he comes to you a million times or 10,000 talents worth of times. You will forgive. No matter how many times your brother comes to you and asks for forgiveness, you are to forgive. This is a symbol of completion or fulfillment. You are never to stop. There are no boundaries. You are to always be one willing to forgive. I know it's hard, but you know what? I'm much quicker And it's much easier for all of us, I would think, to forgive someone who comes to you and asks for forgiveness, which is the implication. Now, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me and and asks me to forgive him? You can forgive him a million times. And it's much easier to do that when they ask. It's harder to do it when they don't. When they sin against you and they don't even ask you for forgiveness. Maybe they're just being mean. (coughs) Maybe they're ones whose hearts have not been changed and they're unforgiving. But you still forgive. You still forgive. Although, I will point out that Peter asks, How often shall I forgive my brother? My brother. And I remind you again, as I did even with the Lord's Prayer, that this is a contrast between you and the world. This is for us, 
We are to be a forgiving people, especially in the family, especially among the brothers and the sisters. Love covers a multitude of sin. It's not that we ignore it. It's not that we don't deal with it. But when one comes and asks for forgiveness, we should be those who are willing to do so. This is amazing. This is what we as a people yet are to show the world that we're those who are not only loving to the world, but forgiving. I want you to quickly look, and we're, we're going to go to another text, but quickly look at Ephesians and see what the Apostle Paul says here. Ephesians chapter 4. Very end of the chapter. If you get to chapter 5, just look up. Verse 32 Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Evidence that you are forgiven is that you will be forgiving. But I ask you to please allow me to touch on one other evidence today. And we'll deal with two more in two weeks. But I'm asking you now to please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8. As we see another really interesting passage. And we see that those who are forgiven will tell the world who forgave them. An evidence that you are forgiven is that you will be quick and willing to tell everyone who forgave you. I wish I had more time to get into this text. It is, as I said, a very interesting text. Look down, if you would, please, beginning at verse 26. Jesus and his disciples sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And and when he came out, Onto the land. You get the picture? He's in the boat with the disciples. And it's he gets out of the boat. Right there. He gets off the boat. Gets onto the land. He was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. So he's a man possessed with demons right as Jesus gets out of the boat. It even goes on to say he had not put on any clothing for a long time and he was not living in a home, but in the tombs. So there must have been a a cemetery not far from the shoreline, but that's where he was. He was a bad guy. He had fallen on really difficult times because he was possessed by this demon. We'll talk more about the demon in a moment. But he's possessed with these demons. But I just want you to see that he's living out by the shore from the city, out from the city, living in the tombs. But we know that he had a home. So he wasn't always like this. Look at verse 39. Return to your house. He had a house, but he wasn't able to live there because of this demon. Let's talk a little bit now about this one. Verse 28, seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? 
I beg you, do not torment me. So here's a demon or demons. Look at his look at what his name. Jesus says to him, What is your name? in verse 30. And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. Legion meaning a lot. A whole bunch. And so this was a man that was possessed by a legion of demons. And they all cried out for mercy to Jesus. Even demons did that. They cried out for mercy. I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And here's a little bit more of a description of what he would do to the man. For he seized him many times. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would still break his bonds. Because he was driven by this demon. This is a, an amazing scene. This is, a, this, is a, this is things that horror movies are made of. Here's this man who's possessed by legions of demons. And Jesus comes. And he immediately begs him not to torment him. Or they begged him not to torment them. Because they knew who he was. They called him Jesus, son of the most high God. Even the demons knew who Jesus was. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't know, but the demons knew. And today, multitudes of people teaching in our schools, running our government, don't know who Jesus is, Son of the Most High God. But demons do. And the demons know more than their lackeys in our government and in our schools. Demons know who Jesus was. Mormons don't know. Jehovah's Witnesses don't know. Muslims don't know. Demons knew he was the Son of God. Do you? Or do demons know more than you? But the demons cried out and asked him for mercy. Verse 31, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. I can simply just say that the abyss would have been pretty much what we would consider nothing. Just void, emptiness, annihilation perhaps would be a good way to put it. Non-existence. Cast into the eternal lake of fire forever. Now there was a herd, verse 32, of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter into the swine. So they, they were being cast out of the man, and so what they say is, rather than sending us into the abyss, send us into these swine. And Jesus gives them permission. So they come out of the man, and they go into the pigs, into the swine. What do the pigs do? Well, the pigs, verse 33, the demons came out of the man, entered into the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. 
So there, the pigs all die anyway. So where did the demons go? To the abyss. The, de- the pigs all die anyway, so the demons, they're just set into the abyss. And now what happens is the herdsmen that were watching over the pigs, the swine, rush into the city. Verse 34. When they saw what happened, they ran away and entered into the city and out into the country. And what did they do? They were obviously telling everybody what happened. Of course, they lost a lot of money. Those pigs would have been worth a lot. So they run back in and they tell the people what happens. Verse 35, And the people come out to see what had happened and what do they see? They came to see Jesus And they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. So here's the guy that they all knew about. Because he had been chained, he had been bound, he had been under guard. Somebody had to pay the guards. They knew who he was. They knew he was out there. They knew he had a house in the city and was now living out in the tombs. They knew this guy. And now they see him. And where was he? Seated at the feet of Jesus. Every single one of you has had Jesus enter your heart if you've been saved, if you've been forgiven. And where will you go? You will sit at his feet. It is a picture of learning from Jesus. You will want to worship him. You will learn from him. He will teach you and you will grow in an understanding of him and who he is. You will learn from Jesus. And this man is in his right mind, completely restored. His head wasn't spinning around anymore. He wasn't throwing him into fires and stuff. He sits at the feet of Jesus in his right mind, learning of Jesus. And he's clothed too, clothed again. And the people come out to see Jesus and they see this man. And what do they do? Do they say, Jesus, come into our city and, and, and we'll welcome you into our city. Do they bring their sick out to Jesus or their other demon possessed out to Jesus to be healed? No, they get frightened. And what do they do? They tell him, get out of here. And the people came out, fear gripped them. And the people of the country, the Gerasenes, said the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And so Jesus got into the boat and returned. Now Jesus has just got there. He just got there. And they tell him, get out. So he's getting out, he's getting out, doing what they asked. And he gets into the boat. Now look what happens. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. Now the demons begged him not to cast him into the abyss and he, to send him into the pigs. He said, okay. But he didn't say that to the, the guy that was released of the demons. He begged him to let him come with him. Why would he do that? Why did he beg Jesus to let him come with him? Because Jesus had set him free. Jesus had set him free. 
It's a picture of salvation where men are set free from their torment and their sin. And it doesn't happen from our culture. It doesn't happen from our society. It happens from Jesus as he sets men free from the torment of sin and death. And this man wanted to follow him, just like the blind guy last week. Bartimaeus, remember? When Jesus gave him his sight, what did he do? He glorified God and followed him. And so this demon-possessed man is set free and he wants to go with Jesus. He wants to follow him. But Jesus says, no, stay here. What does Jesus tell him to do? Return, verse 39, to your home and describe what great things God has done for you. And what does he do? So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. How he had forgiven him, healed him, set him free from not just demons, but from his sin debt. And he goes back to the city and he tells all these people what Jesus had done for him. This is the city that said to Jesus, get out. Now look at the next verse. And... As Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. Now, many believe that this is him going right back to the same place later on. And now, instead of telling him to get out, they welcomed him. We find the same thing in parallel passages in Matthew's Gospel. These people that wanted him to leave now wanted him to stay. They wanted him to come. They wanted him to be there. And they welcomed him. Why? What changed this city? That one man who was saved by Jesus went back and told them all that he had done for them. And the city was changed. They couldn't wait for Jesus to come back. Jesus came back and they welcomed him. Do you realize that your testimony can change a family, can change a life, can change a family, can change a community, can change a city? This one man went out and told what Jesus had done and it turned the city upside down. As we close this morning, I invite you to look at chapter 24 of Luke as we see that this is what Jesus tells us that we are supposed to be doing. Luke 24. Look down all the way almost to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Verse 46. Let's pick up verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In other words, I'm sending you forth with the message of redemption 
sins forgiven through my death, burial, and resurrection. We are to be those who proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins. It is evidence that you have been forgiven. Think about this. If you really understood Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, how He suffered and bled and died, and it was so that you could be set free from your sin debt, so that you would be forgiven, wouldn't you want to tell, wouldn't you have to tell your family, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers. And why wouldn't preachers want to preach this from the Bible? That men are sinners that need to be forgiven of their sins and that only the sacrificial, bloody death of Christ on the cross could accomplish this. And yet they don't even say things like that anymore. They're ashamed. They want to talk about the blood of Christ. They don't want to call anyone sinners that need to be forgiven. You don't need to be forgiven. You just need to be made happy. To feel good. We are to be, preachers are to be proclaiming the forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial death of Christ. It is an evidence of a forgiven man or woman. And I say to you, it is an evidence of a true church. That this is what we will proclaim. God help us never to fail to proclaim the truth of God's word and the work of Christ. And God help us to be a forgiving people as we do. Let's pray.